You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. In the year 480 BC, a huge and fierce army crossed from Asia into Europe. This multinational army was led by the king of Persia, King Xerxes. Xerxes. I didn't say that right. This super army is estimated to be at a minimum of 250,000 soldiers. It's a quarter of a million soldiers. Some historians from that time sort of elevated to about a half a million soldiers. But even if we went with a conservative estimate, that's a lot of soldiers. In fact, it was said that for this army to pass in review before they left for the invasion, it took a week for this whole army to pass before the king in review. The goal of this invasion was quite simple, to subdue Greece and expand the vast Persian Empire. And this was before, before the cultural height of Greece. So therefore, in Greece, they were, just, they were a divided, unprepared group of city-states. The Greeks, knowing that the Persians are coming, were able to muster a ragtag army of 7,000 men from five city-states, including 300 Spartans, led by King Leonidas. Leonidas. Their motto, the Spartans' motto was, come back with your shield or on it. In other words, come back victorious or don't come back at all. They, they took this small army of 7,000 against a quarter of a million soldiers, took their stand in a narrow pass, at the time estimated it to be just about 20 yards wide, bounded by the sea on one side and very high cliffs on the other side. And because of the sulfur springs in the area, the Greeks called the place Thermophily, known as Hot Gates or the Gates of Fire. At first, the Persian army did not give this tiny opposition force much consideration. But then for two days, the unstoppable army was stopped. On the second day, Xerxes himself, fearing that his army would panic because they had never met resistance like this, sent his best soldiers into the fight, the famed immortals. But they too were repulsed at a great cost. For two long days, this super army attacked unceasingly, and the heroic handful of Greeks stood their ground. Then, disastrously, the Greeks were betrayed. By night, a traitor led the Persians over the cliffs so that they would, at daybreak, be surrounding, be behind and surrounding the Greek force. Leonidas, knowing this, seeing this coming, dismissed his army, except for his Spartans and a few other men, and they went to a mound, small mound in the middle of the field where, where they would stand their ground. Before they died, they sent home a message that would become their epitaph. It said, Stranger, tell the Spartans that we have behaved as they would ha- wish us to and are buried here. These, what these gallant soldiers did not know was that their example would trigger a surge of pride and boldness among the Greeks and the Greek city-states, inspiring the Greeks to, uh, to many victories, a couple key victories in the upcoming battles against the Persians, and finally get, getting rid of or um, repelling the Persians from Greece itself. Thirty short years later, 
the city of Athens would rise to become the most influential city the world has ever known. This historic event, some of you should be familiar with it, was, has made, been popular in our day through the historical no novel by Stephen Pressfield, The Gates of Fire, which is a good novel, historical novel, or the movie, more recently, 300. This was a classic, epic battle. And what makes a battle epic is not simply the size of it or the ferociousness of the fighting. What makes a battle epic is the significance of its outcome. The, the, the consequences of epic battles touch many people's lives, not only the lives of those people who fight in it and their families, but also the people they represent, even for generations to come. That's what makes battles epic, like Gettysburg, like D-Day, there's a numerous battles that we could call epic for that very reason. Today we're going to look at an epic battle, but it's often overlooked as such. It's often just the simple thing of a temptation of Christ, and yet we miss the force of the epicness of this battle. Will you stand with me as we read out of the Gospel according to Matthew? We'll be reading Matthew, beginning of chapter 3, 16, a little bit of what Josh shared from last week. And we'll be reading through uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and... On their hands they will bear, him up, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Again the devil took him to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve, and only shall you serve. Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that we can see the incredible uh, ferocity of the battle that was taking place here, though simple in its description is not uh, little in its consequence to us. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to see Christ and the incredible generosity we have through Christ and the suffering he took upon him for our sake. We thank you in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Before we look at this battle, we actually need to set the stage for the war. There were earlier battles in this spiritual warfare, in this in redemptive history, the original battle that this, uh, that this reflects is the one in, in, with Adam and Eve in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. 
In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation of the world and, and Adam and Eve and their place in the garden. And we describe the context of that first battle is, is very different than one Jesus faced. They lived in perfect comfort. Perfect comfort. They were in a paradise. They had all the food they wanted to eat at their disposal. They, they were naked and unashamed. And that tells us two things. One is they didn't need clothing for two reasons. One is the weather was so perfect they didn't need clothing. And the second thing is, there was no sin. So there was no guilt, no shame. Nakedness was not an issue. So they, they were free from the sinful environment. They had uninhibited relationships with each other as a man and a woman, but also with God, walking with God and communing with God. They lived with a clear purpose, to have dominion over the earth. And they had only one commandment to obey, just one. The Lord had come to, them, come to the man, Adam, and said, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat of it you will surely die. Well, we told just a short time later that Satan, disguised as a serpent, came to tempt Adam and Eve. And in, that, in that Genesis 3 we read that he came and, and Satan comes to tempt Adam and Eve to disobey God. He only has one commandment. And he says, this is what you need to do. Break that commandment. And, and Satan came to the woman and says, did God actually say you shouldn't eat of the trees of the garden? And Satan is calling into question God's word. Did God really say that? Are you sure? And then the woman said, oh yeah, we can eat any of the tree of the garden, but, but he did say you should not eat of the fruit that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it or you will die. Well, she's wrong. God didn't say anything about it being in the middle of the garden. He didn't, he didn't say anything about touching the fruit of the tree. He said, don't eat it. They could touch it, make, put swings in it, make a treehouse in it. He didn't care. They can't eat of the fruit. But either Adam or Eve added to the commandments of God, made it more restrictive. And then the serpent said, you will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. In other words, Satan's saying, you, you can't trust God. He's holding things back from you that you deserve. And then he goes on, and when the woman saw that it was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, she wasn't considering, and Adam wasn't considering, and Adam was there beside her, wasn't considering what God had said. And Adam and Eve prioritized their own desires over God's directives, and then they acted on those desires. We know this epic battle because of the consequences that it instilled to the rest of humanity as the fall. The fall of Adam. The fall of Adam, uh, in that fall, all of humanity has suffered ever since. With that fall, sin, guilt, shame, death, suffering, turmoil, bondage entered the world and have touched lives of every single person ever since, including you and me. Immediately after that battle, the father comes, finds Adam and Eve, and he deals with the situation. And part of that dealing with it, he says that this, is a, this was a, a, a big battle, but there's bigger ones coming, and I will win this war. And in it, he promised... Uh, uh, God speaks to the Satan, speaks to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her, and she shall bruise, he shall bruise your head or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He promises the first promise of the gospel that a child would come and defeat Satan. The rest of the Bible is explaining how that happened. In fact, in, in the New Testament, we're told the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
Also in the New Testament, in Romans 5, there's this understanding that Adam, all of us humanity was represented in the first Adam, but also all of humanity is represented in what is called either the second or the last Adam, meaning Jesus. For example, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many were made righteous. Christ is the second Adam. He's, he's, as Adam functioned as representing all of humanity and sin entered the world, Christ represents all of humanity and his divinity in bringing righteousness into the world. That's the, that's the backdrop of the war in which Jesus is going to fight a battle. Now, the immediate context is the baptism of Jesus. That Jesus was baptized, and in that baptism, as Josh talked about last week, Jesus identified with fallen humanity and their need to repent of their sins. Jesus became one, identified with one of them. This was confirmed by the presence and affirmation of both the Holy Spirit and the Father. And we see that Jesus was led by the Spirit in our text. He was, it was then, right after the baptism, then, immediately after this, Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus wasn't blindsided by Satan. Jesus didn't fall into some trap. This battle was intentional. This battle was part of God's plan. He was being led into the wilderness specifically to engage in the deliberate divine combat with Satan. Jesus was led into the wilderness and he fasted and he was hungry. To state the obvious. In other words, Jesus, unlike Adam, Jesus was alone. Jesus was in a very harsh environment. And Jesus was physically weak. He was weakened physically in preparation for this encounter, intentionally. God wanted him to do that. But he was also strengthened for this encounter through his fasting and prayer. Fasting always goes with prayer. So though he was physically weak, he spiritually had spent 40 days talking with the Father and was ready for battle. He was there to be tempted by the devil. The devil is not an impersonal force. He's not a personification of evil. The devil, scripturally, is a real being, an evil being, the spiritual archenemy of God who opposes the plans of God. In our text, he's named four times. He's given the name the tempter in verse 3. In verses 5 and 8, called the devil or the accuser. And in verse 10, he's called Satan or the adversary. Satan tempts by promoting the distrust in God and promising false promises. That's how Satan tempts, and that's what he's going to do to Jesus. Now, before we get to the temptation itself, what's at stake? What's at stake? Why is this such a big deal? In verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3 sets the stage. Satan leads with his uh, assumptions. He says, if you are the Son of God, and it, better, it would be better be translated, since you are the Son of God. Satan isn't questioning whether or not this is true. He's saying, because you are the Son of God, I want want to share some things. I want to interact with you about that. He's not calling it into question. He's He's not that stupid. He says, if you are the Son of God. In other words, Satan is saying, because this is true, then I want you to do this. I dare you. That's the temptation. The temptations are to get Jesus to distrust the Father, to turn him away from his mission of being the Christ, the Messiah. If he, Satan could get him to do either of those things, don't trust the Father anymore, or just don't do the mission you were here to do, Satan wins the battle and would win the war. 
Satan is saying, you, you are the Son of God, so fulfill your role in Christ as the Christ on your own terms, Jesus. Don't, don't listen to the Father. Do it your way. We know this, and we know that, he's, that this is tied directly to the mission of Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Because when Christ is hanging on the cross, the same uh, temptation comes up. Through the people there, they say, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They tempted him to come down. So we know this battle, this battle for temptations. And at this point in our text today, Satan is trying to keep Jesus from even getting to the cross. So he's trying to work through this. Also, we had end of this, the setting of this was that the father had said, this is my beloved son of whom I am well pleased. And he said it out loud. He said it so people could hear it. That must have infuriated Satan. This is your son and you're pleased with him? Well, I'll show you. What Satan wants is the son to disobey and betray the father. That's all he has to do. We see that the tempter in each of these three temptations attacks Jesus' trust in God the Father's providence. He wants to draw Jesus away from the willing submission of the Father and into the independent exercise of his status and power as the Christ. He's not saying he's not the Christ. He's just saying, Christ, be the Christ your way, not God's way. I'm going to rephrase the temptations. The temptations we're going to look at, I'm going to simplify them by saying this. Jesus was tempted. Satan was saying to Jesus three things. He was saying, Jesus, serve yourself. Jesus, prove yourself. Jesus, satisfy yourself. Now, at this point, I need to put in a little disclaimer. There's a, I'm not sure what to call it, a pressure, an expectation in preaching to be uh, to keep people's attention and to be pragmatic, to be useful, to give a message that's helpful for people so that when they leave, they have something to do to make their life better, at least feel better about themselves. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. But there is a degree of expectation that this message to be a good sermon needs to be useful for you. The message today would be something like, here's how we can be freed from the pressures of serving and proving and satisfying ourselves. Since Jesus was tempted to serve himself, this is how we can overcome the temptation to serve ourselves. Since Jesus was tempted to prove himself, this is how we can overcome the temptation to prove ourselves. Since Jesus was tempted to, to satisfy himself, this is how we can overcome the temptation to satisfy ourselves. I'm not going to do that today. Not at all. It's like leveraging the account of the Battle of Thermopylae or Gettysburg or D-Day and say, here's how to be a really good soldier. And missing the point of the battle. Missing the consequences. Missing the world-changing ramifications of the battle itself. I don't want to distract us from the primary meaning of what Matthew is trying to tell us here. Matthew has announced that the Messiah, the Savior, has come. He is the king of the world and is here to establish his kingdom. And he is now going head-to-head with his archenemy to do battle. Let's not pragmatism, let's not our wanting to be something useful, miss the impact of that battle. Now, it's, and, and, and understand that this passage is primarily about Jesus and not directly about ourselves. I might be saying things that you already know. This is a no Delroy's, but I, I want to be clear. 
as I work through this passage. Now, there are times for practical teaching. There are times to do this. In fact, we're going to be going through for a couple months the Sermon on the Mount, which is how to live kingdom living. But here now, this is about Christ. This is not about us. The first temptation we see is with Jesus to serve yourself. Satan says, serve yourself. We see this in verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan tempts Jesus to exercise his divine power. You got, you got power, Jesus. Use it. I want you to use it, Lord. You should use it, Jesus, to bring relief to your own human discomfort and suffering. You, you haven't had food for 40 days. The Father hasn't provided food for you for 40 days. You're hungry. Well, you have the ability, the power to feed yourself. Feed yourself. Satan is trying to get Jesus to prioritize his physical comfort and his humanity over, and over the spiritual world and his divinity. Remember that besides being fully God, Jesus is fully human. And this is a hard thing. Going 40 days without food is hard. And the text even says, and he was hungry to state the obvious. Jesus was struggling physically. He was alone. He was in a, a desolate place. This was hard. And Satan's coming to him and said, you can do something about this. Serve yourself. We could rephrase the temptation and say, Jesus, you, you shouldn't have to put up with this physical discomfort. Use your power to relieve it. Jesus, since you can do it, you have the right to do it. Jesus, you're the son of God after all. You should not have to go hungry. You're a king. Kings eat big meals. Make yourself a big meal. Jesus, serve yourself, was the temptation. Jesus' response to this temptation we see in verse 4. But he answered him, and it's written that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus does not appeal to some, his innate authority, his innate power. He does not appeal to his rights as the Christ, as the Messiah. Instead, he quotes Scripture. He quotes Scripture as the word of God. God said, therefore, I'm going to do this. And he quotes scripture meant for everyone, but Jesus applies it to himself. Jesus is keeping straight the priority of submitting to God's word in everything, even suffering, over the physical comfort and well-being that he was struggling with. Now, we need to be clear, this is not a dualism that is, was popular in some cultures and sometimes even today, that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. That's not what Jesus is saying. We know this because he said, man shall not live by bread alone. Alone. In other words, he's not saying we shouldn't be eating bread, but that's not the primary objective. He's saying food is necessary, it's just that food is not the priority. We, we, scripture has a lot to say about feeding the hungry and, and taking care of people's physical needs. That's not Jesus' point. Man shall not live, exist, have a life on bread alone, physical comfort alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is, more, this is about living a life, and it's more than physical existence, comfort and pleasure. It's about our spiritual existence and it's a priority that we are connected with the Father, connected to God. And, and that has eternal ramifications, and Jesus knew that. 
It's interesting if we stopped and thought about it, and we'll see it in, a, in a, probably a few months in Matthew 14. Did Jesus ever make bread out of thin air? Did, did Jesus ever do that? Yeah, he did. He did. At the, at the, we call it the feeding of the 5,000 because he fed 5,000. It's pretty amazing. And, and it's interesting. If we, we're not going to read that whole passage, but if you look at that passage in Matthew 14, it parallels what's happening here. Jesus does ministry, and he goes out into what's called a desolate place. He goes out into the wilderness again. But the, this time, the crowds follow him. He's been in ministry. The crowds follow him, and he, so he serves them. And we're told that Jesus had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. And his, the day was getting long. And so he, he said, hey, disciples, hey, feed them. Uh, they say, dismiss them because they need to be fed. He goes, you feed them. We, we can't. We don't have enough. So what does Jesus do? He prays, and he gives a blessing. He thanks God for God's faithfulness, the Father. And then he feeds 5,000 men, not including women and children, so that there's basketful left over. Jesus does, has the power, and did make bread out of rocks, in essence. But there's a difference between the two. Satan wanted him to demonstrate, to prove himself, to serve himself. You take care of Jesus first. But this time, when Jesus actually did it and fed so many people, he did it as a demonstration of his power and his dependence on the Father and the generosity of the Father, and that they, the crowds would put faith in him as the Messiah because of God's faithfulness, the Father's faithfulness, not because of his own. That's the difference. The first temptation was for Jesus to serve yourself. The second temptation for Jesus was to prove yourself. Prove yourself. We see this in verses 5 and 6. And The devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and um, on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Again, Satan is not denying that Jesus is the Son of God. He's just saying, Jesus, since you are, because you are the Son of God, prove it. <coughs> prove it, right here, right now, prove it. Just because you call yourself that, just because the Father calls you that, doesn't mean it's really true. Let's, let's have a demonstration of that power. And, and this proving it is in two ways. First of all, because Jesus is the Son of God, and, and, and is, we are told in the text Jesus, previous to this, is specially loved by the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Satan was provoking Jesus to prove that the Father really loved him. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Really? Prove it. The temptation, if we could rephrase Satan's temptation, would be something like, Really? If that's true, then he would not let any harm come to you. If you really are his loved son and he's pleased, he wouldn't let anything happen to you. The father says, the father says he loves you, but how can you be sure, Jesus, that he loves you? Actions speak louder than words. Throw yourself off, let him catch you, then you'll know for sure. If you're so special, Jesus... Prove it. And the second, second part of this temptation is that Jesus, um, Satan is, wants Jesus to publicly display his authority and power so that Satan proposes that Jesus can prove that he's the Christ and win public pro, uh, um, acclaim. 
Now, where is, where is this temptation taking place? It's taking place in the temple, around the temple. The temple is a crowded place. The temple always has large crowds around it. There's, the understanding here is he's in a place where there's a large crowd. Jesus, do this, and the crowds will know you are the Messiah and the Christ. Satan is saying he's trying to lure Jesus to do the spectacular and ignore his role as the suffering servant. Be, be spectacular. Go big or go home. That's what Satan's saying to Jesus. The temptation, if we could rephrase it, is all you need is one spectacular display of who you are, and you'll win everyone to your cause. That's all you need, Jesus. Why work hard when a little razzle-dazzle will get the job done? Why suffer when you have the ability right here, right now, to win everybody over? In other words, Jesus, prove yourself. Jesus responds to the second temptation. He says in verse 7, Jesus says to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Again, he says, Again, it is written. And Jesus again appeals to the words of the Father to him. He, Jesus is, does not argue logic with Satan. He does not come up with an alternative plan for Satan. He simply says, It is written. Again, Satan, it is written. I'm going back to what the Father said is true. Jesus is demonstrating here his trust and confidence in God, the Father. And the reason he can trust God's word is because he trusts God. Because God himself can be trusted, is trustworthy. Jesus knows that. Remember the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased? Well, Jesus could reverse that and say, that's my beloved Father in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus knew the Father, and he did not have to prove that the Father loved him to Satan or to anyone. He knew it. Jesus also was reaffirming his commitment to be the servant king, as we'll see later in Matthew. He will do God's work. He'll do it God's way, and he will achieve God's purpose. No shortcuts needed. If you remember uh, a little later, again, in Matthew, at the end of his life, Jesus will be hanging on the cross, and he will be provoked again to prove himself. In Matthew 27, we read that he's hanging on the cross, and those people went by him, mocked him, and wagged their heads at him, and they said, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also even the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they mocked him saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from there and we will believe in him. And he, they continued, he trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if God desires to do so. For he said, he is, he, for he said for Je, they, they're quoting Jesus, for Jesus said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. Although Jesus could have come down from the cross, he didn't. He didn't need to prove himself. And you know what the irony is of that last temptation, which we'll look at? The ultimate proof that he was the Son of God, the ultimate proof that he did trust the Father, the ultimate proof that, he, that the Father would deliver him, 
was that he stay on the cross and that he die for our sins. But even that temptation at the, at the very end, prove yourself, Jesus. Jesus resisted. Then we have the third temptation. first one was to serve yourself. The second one is to prove yourself. The third temptation, Jesus is, uh, Satan is saying to Jesus, satisfy yourself. Satisfy yourself, Jesus. We see this in verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. In his third, in his third attempt, Satan gets really bold. He's got two strikes. He's going in this time hard. He presents himself as a king with a vast domain. If not equal to God, but but at least worthy to be considered close to God. Satan claims that he has his own he owns the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He doesn't define what that glory is, but Satan says, This is all mine. And I can give you the pleasures, the glory of those worlds I can give to you. A couple years ago when we preached through the redemptive history story of the Bible, when we got to this this section of the Bible, Nate painted a picture that's hanging on our wall of the temptation of Christ, of, of Satan showing him the kingdoms of the world. That's Nate's depiction of, of the temptation. Yeah, this, is, this is all yours. I, I can give this to you right here, right now. That's what Satan's saying to him. Satan is offering a shortcut. A way to achieve Jesus' desired end, but without the costly means. Satan is not even saying to Jesus, worship him only. He doesn't say, just worship me only. No, you you can still worship God the Father. That's okay. You you can give him some time. But but you can worship me too. You know, just point a little worship my way. A little little bowing down my way. What, what What can that hurt? If, if God's worth so much worship, he has some to spare, you, you can worship me too. It's okay. The temptation, if we rephrased it, would, would be something, maybe something like this. He says, if you're the son of God, you deserve glory. You're a king. You deserve pleasure. I, I can give it to you with minimal effort. All you got to do is bow. Just imagine it, Jesus all the world and its pleasures are at your disposal right here, right now. All you have to do, Jesus, is acknowledge me for how great I am. You, you can worship God the Father some other time. Get the glory, Jesus. Get the pleasure, Jesus. Get your victory, Jesus, now. Satisfy yourself now is his temptation. And we see Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, Jesus knows that the supposed kingdoms and glory Satan is offering are, first of all, not only not satisfying, they are illegitimate and not real. Jesus isn't duped. And, there's, and they are nothing. The glory and the kingdoms that he's offering him are nothing in compared to the kingdom of God and God's glory. It's like the parable of the man who finds a treasure in a field and then buries it and goes back and sells all that he has 
and with great joy goes and buys that field. There's a treasure that exceeds all the world's value. Buy that field. And Jesus is doing that. You can offer me all you want, but they are pale. They're rust. They're garbage in comparison to the kingdom of God. He also knows, Jesus, Jesus also knows who he's tempting him. He's not fooled by who this is. He knows that claim, G, Satan claims to own the kingdoms. Satan claims to have this glory at his disposal. And Satan claims that he's worthy of worship. But Jesus also knows that Satan is true to his character. He is the father of lies. He can only speak lies. So Jesus isn't buying it. God alone is worthy of worship and service. And Jesus knew this. Jesus lived this. Jesus taught this. We'll see this again and soon in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, wealth, material pleasure. You, you can't do both. Pick one. Jesus had already picked one, and he wasn't going for the, the carrot of the other one. Jesus also knows that why he's there. Satan's offering him, here's my kingdoms, I'll give them to you. But Jesus knows he's there to destroy Satan's kingdom. He's there to establish God's kingdom. We read this, in, for example, in Colossians. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Not only is Jesus not buying it, but he's saying, my kingdom is going to kick your kingdom's butt. Why would I trade it? So he says, be gone, Satan. Three strikes. You're out. Adios. That's my interpretation. Three, um, and then in verse 11, we read just a little, little sentence there. And then the devil left him. The devil had to leave. And behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. The devil left him. Satan backed down in this battle, but he would be back. The war is not over. He lost this epic battle, but the war for Satan is not over. And he said the angels came and ministered to him. Jesus refused to yield to Satan, but trusted in God and waited for God's provision. And now that the battle's over, God the Father is providing that provision, even to his physical well-being. This battle and that's really what it is, is an epic battle because of the consequences of it. If Satan had been able to tempt Christ successfully and had him deny the Father, mistrust the Father, disobey the Father, do a shortcut in his mission, not go to the cross, then the world would not be what we have. There is no salvation. There is no kingdom of God. And God would not be God. But that's not what happened. Christ won the battle. The war is not over as we'll see through Matthew, as we go through Matthew's Gospel. The Gospel message itself is about this battle, this war. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I was delivered over... Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. This is what God has planned since... Uh, before the creation of the world, but he tells us first in Genesis 3 when he says, Satan, he's going to crush your head. Christ, Christ crushed his head by dying on the cross, according to the scripture, as God planned. And that he was raised from the dead in victory. 
according to the Scriptures. A little while later, a couple verses in that same chapter, Paul says this. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is for those people who, are, who doubt that it happens. Uh, the first fruits of those who fall asleep. As for by a man came by, for as by a man came death, Adam, by, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Christ. For as, at, for as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's a summary of the gospel. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. That's what the battle's about. That's what the war's about. And that verse I just quoted a minute ago, He, God the Father, delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. The price has been paid. We've been bought back. Satan has been defeated. The forgiveness of sins. Our relationship with the Father is restored. We are now beloved sons and daughters in whom He is well pleased. Why can God call us beloved sons and daughters and is well pleased with us, regardless of how we live our lives, because we are in Christ? Just says, sin came through Adam, the righteousness came through Christ. We now experience that in the Father's eyes. We are loved. We can be sure of that. We're accepted. We're significant. We're secure. Because of Christ is the second Adam. And he says in here that we are transferred between the kingdom, from the king, domain of darkness and the kingdom of his beloved Son. There are two kingdoms in this war. Two kingdoms. According to the passage. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved Son. Which are you in? You're in one, or you're in the other. Those are the only two options, according to the Scriptures. If you know that you're in the kingdom of darkness, or you're not sure, know that you can be freed from the darkness through faith in Christ. Know that you can be out of the darkness through faith in Christ. It is not a battle that you have to fight. That's part of the good news. The battle's been fought. The victory has been won. You get to just be part of the victorious, uh, you receive the victorious benefits. You are, they've already been secured through faith. And Christ has already accomplished that. He's won the war. He's established his kingdom. You just have to choose to go over and be a part of that. Paul tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, King, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and are saved. That's the response. If you find yourself or struggling or unsure whether you're in the kingdom domain of darkness, that is the answer, is to confess Christ as Lord. And believe in your heart, not just your head, your heart, that the gospel is true. If you know that you're in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, if you have responded already to the gospel in repentance and faith, then our answer is we should celebrate. Victory is ours. It's it's victory time. We can celebrate all the time. We give thanks to the Father. He, He will not that Jesus did not relinquish his trust in the, the Father, that Jesus was not distracted from his mission. Let's be thankful for Jesus that he did what he came to do. 
We can celebrate this. We celebrate the victory of Christ. And we do that every week through taking communion. Every week, Jesus established the communion time of my body was broken for you, my blood was shed for you, to remind us of lots of things, lots of benefits of the cross. One of them is that Satan did not defeat him and will not defeat him. So when you go up to the table today, if you responded to the gospel, if you are part of the kingdom of the beloved son and you've responded to the gospel and repentance of faith, go up there and take it. But I would ask today that you thank Christ that he won the battle against Satan. That you explicitly thank him that he does not ever distrust the Father or he does not ever turn his back on the Father or he doesn't ever try to do it his own way, but the Father's way. And because of that, we receive eternal benefits. When you take communion, it's called the Eucharist, giving thanks for a reason. Let's give thanks to God because of Christ. Let's pray with me. Lord, we thank you for history, for a recording of events that inform us and inspire us. Whether they're Greek battles against the Persians or other battles, but especially in the Scripture, where we can look and see, particularly in the events of Christ, His life, that things really happened, that Jesus was a real person who lived a real life and who walked among real people and who battled a real Satan and won real victories on our behalf. Not his own behalf, on our behalf. We thank you that he is the suffering servant. We thank you that he is the Messiah and the Christ. We thank you that he is the beloved son in whom the Father is well pleased. And we thank you, Lord, that because of Christ's provision for us in the gospel, we also can call God Father. And we also can know that we are beloved children in whom the Father is well pleased because we are in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.